Welcome to Coaching DNA Podcast. I am your host, Travis Wyckoff. My guests on this podcast are coaches, athletic directors, sports psychologists, and really anyone else that can add value to leaders. In each episode, we spend time exploring leadership, culture, development, personal growth, and much, much more. The guests are different in many ways, but share profound similarities. They are hungry to get better, they are guided by purpose, and they are driven to develop the people around them. Each episode allows us to dive into what skills, attributes, and giftings make up great leaders. When I'm not doing this podcast, I run Kingdom Coaching. It is my consulting business where I coach coaches. I work with coaches one-on-one. I work with coaching staffs, as well as run online cohorts. Additionally, I write a weekly email newsletter to resource coaches with tools and strategies to be better leaders and coaches. To find out more, visit my website at kingdomcoachingtw.com and please check me out on Twitter at kingdomcoachtw or at coaching underscore DNA and give me a follow. I hope you enjoy the show. My guest this week is Brett Ledbetter. Brett is the co-founder of What Drives Winning. He is a consultant, author, and speaker. His books include What Drives Winning Environments and What Drives Winning Teams. Brett and I talk about the commonalities of elite leaders. He shares the genesis of What Drives Winning and how that started. We talk about the difference between pro and power tools and much, much more. Brett's company does outstanding work. The the videos they produce are extremely well done and and informative. Uh, I could have visited with Brett for hours, just really insightful and smart guy, but we had a a little bit of a tight window. So without further ado, my conversation with Brett Ledbetter. Brett, thanks for taking time. Super pumped uh, to get a chance to visit with you. Why don't you take us on your journey from high school to present day? So high school, per your recommendation, let's get into it, man. (laughs) Okay, so high school, uh, small town, 5,000 people, grew up on a uh, gravel road and played at a a high school in Missouri. Led the state of Missouri in scoring my senior year, did not have any college offers, Mm -hmm. and late in the summer, there was an opening that came from a local junior college, Southwestern Illinois College. And the Hall of Fame coach there was Jay Harrington at the time. And so I played two years for him. And then I went to the University of Idaho for a year. We were four and 25, coach got fired and everyone left. And then I finished at a local division two school back in St. Louis which was close to home during that time. That was a tough time because I worked so hard to realize this dream. And then you feel like you're kind of going in reverse. And so I started a basketball academy Hmm. where we worked with fifth through 12th graders. And that was really the beginning for me because I found that to be therapeutic to pour into the next generation. And I think it really was therapy for me. And then one thing led to another. 
And one of the things that we wanted to do with that basketball academy was we wanted it to be a laboratory. And so I made it, I, I called my former teammate, Jason Rose, who was a walk-on at Idaho and asked him to come down to help me. And we worked out of a gym in a church and we would have about 220 kids that we would see on a weekly basis. And we'd see them for once a week for 90 minutes. And there was an element of skill development, which we deconstructed the movement of the game. And then there was an element of character development, and that's where we would start every session. And what we did to develop those two things is for the character development piece, I would interview a lot of coaches that were very high profile because the majority of the kids thought that they wanted to play college basketball. And because we were seeing them weekly, my goal was to remove my voice from that space. And so I would bring the coaches to them through video and then I would ask them, what do you take away from that? And that really became the foundation of how we taught. And then on the court, my business partner and I thought maybe the best way for them to own their development would be to only ask questions. And so we would teach through asking questions. And we found that that was a way to get them to increase their ownership because what they did the time away from us was really more important than what they did with us. And so we were constantly trying to figure out how to increase their intrinsic motivation, because if the parents didn't see development um, as a person and a player, then we didn't feel like it would be worth their investment to continue to come on. So there was a book that I read in my mid twenties. It was called the talent code by Daniel Coyle. And I, uh, I reached out to him and said that it had a profound impact and that I'd like to interview him. And so we did that and he deconstructed what we were doing on the skill development side. And there was a coach at Florida who also reached out to Daniel Coyle and he said, hey, I think you two should meet. And through a series of events, we did meet. And then that led to me meeting Becky Burley who is the soccer coach at Florida. And she asked, can I come and observe the footwork curriculum? So she came up with the intention of looking at the skill development, but we spent all of our time in what we called the film room, which is where we did the character development stuff. And she asked me if we could talk on a regular basis. And so we started to do that. And then she asked, can you work with my team? And I was a little reluctant to do that just because it was outside my realm. I did not know much about the sport. And she actually thought that that was an asset. Hmm. So we started working together with her team. And then we said, hey, what if we work together with all the coaches at Florida? And so we met with every coach and said, what if we have a, a head coach collaboration? And every coach was supportive. And that started to take a life of its own on. And then we thought, hey, what if we did this nationally and we threw a conference and we just charged people what it would cost to bring everyone together. And we did that the same year. That was in 2015. And so that happened. And then once word got out that I was working at the college level, 
then uh, other universities started to contact and then it's just kind of taken a, a whole life of its own on it. Love it. Thanks for walking. Yeah. See, how many minutes was that? Did that, did that check the box for us? Dude, that's perfect. I, I can't tell you how much stories resonate with people. So thank you for walking us through that. That's good stuff. Okay. What little town in Missouri? I'm curious. I'm from Kansas. So I'm curious. If I know there you go. Uh, were you a Jayhawk? No, I, I, I went to Wichita State. So I say, I say, uh, so I grew up, it was Warrington, Missouri. It's okay. right in the middle between Columbia and St. Louis. Gotcha. And what division two school did you finish your career playing at? University of Missouri, St. Louis. St. Louis. Okay. Love it. You've been around some really, really elite leaders. I'm curious, what are the commonalities that you see amongst these high level highly successful, high character leaders? That was one of the things we really tried to extrapolate in the most recent book, What Drives Winning Environments. And really the question we asked ourselves is, what can we do to build an environment where people can do their best work? And we started to just observe all the people that we'd been around and the patterns emerged and it seemed like how you define, manage and model your expectation is really what drives the environment as a leader. As you're, as you guys are trying to extrapolate this, as you guys are trying to figure out what, what is it, what does a leader do to create a really good environment? Who are some people that you, that you saw do this really well to define, manage, and model? One of them is someone that you mentioned, Tim Corbin. Yep. And he he has a classroom setting every day. I don't know if you all have gotten into that, yep. but essentially defining is a proactive approach. And something that we talk about in the book is it comes from PJ Fleck and he has what he calls how university where anything that is expected is defined and you can do it in a variety of ways. You can dictate the standards or the rules to your team, or you can collaborate. Uh, one of the, the things that I think about is that the, if you're gonna dictate the power dynamics have to be in your favor. And I think the things that attracted me was the leaders that had the power, but didn't leverage it. And they would find a way to collaborate and create shared ownership with the locker room about how they were gonna live together. Yeah. Give me an example of somebody who had power. Are you talking like a PJ Fleck who, who at the end of the day probably has some power over the locker room, but doesn't leverage that actually collaborates? Is that? I think that typically from the college level down, the coach is going to have a decent amount of power. Now yeah. I think the landscape is changing to where maybe the gap is not as wide. I think what I love studying is NBA coaches because the coaches in that league, it's a player's league. Yep. And so if one of the lines I love from Jay Wright is the goal of a team is to get your best player, the most committed to your core values. Mm -hmm. I think that it's so true. And I think in the NBA, if you don't have power, how do you reach the best player and get him to want to do that? Especially if, the interests of self and team conflict. How do you navigate that? How, how are you seeing that play out? How does an NBA coach who, who really doesn't hold the power position 
win influence with his key people, his key players? I think it's different in all contexts, as you know. I, I would say that just so if we could back up for your listeners, anytime what we would consider a power tool is when you're exercising authority to force control. Mm-hmm. And what we would consider a pro tool is how you win influence. So simply put, pro tool, winning influence, power tool, forcing control. Yeah. And so what I, there's a a whole host of tactics that you can use, but it's a lot more listening. It's a lot more asking. Mm -hmm. And it's trying to align their interests with the team interests. How many people do you think that, that, that are able to leverage this pro tool, this ability to win influence, is that innate? Is that, can it, if it can be increased, how much can it be increased? Or is it just flat out, man, some people have the ability to win influence. So many, so much of our socialization plays into that. So I don't know how to quantify that. Yeah. I do think that you're placed in scenarios where, if you're trying to survive, that's your only tactic. So for example, my business partner, Becky Burley, she became a head coach at 21. So you're not like walking in there and exercising authority. And so she learned how to create collaboration to get them to go in the same direction. Then she gets the job at 26 at Florida, still young and has been socialized the first couple of years as a coach to collaborate. Mm does the same thing and wins. So maybe one of the things I would ask to your question would be, I I saw this conversation exchange where a wealthy investor was asked, what would you like to know about investments that we can't know? And he said that the role luck plays into that. Hmm. And I think that it's so easy to reduce the reason for an outcome that occurs And then we double down on that when there could be a variety of factors. And so I think it ultimately comes down to how malleable the person is towards change. Yeah. Because the traditional coach um, did not necessarily lead this way. What other attributes do you see in these high performing leaders, whether it be in the NBA or whether it be in your experiences with a ton of college coaches? Yeah, I'm just I'm 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 always fascinated. You know, there's there's the conversation. You know, there's a hundred podcasts on leadership, and one person's going to say communication is the key to leadership, and another person's going to say clarity is the key to leadership. And you know, each it seems like people have different ideas. Do you see uh, what other commonalities do you see that just these high achieving leaders have? If probably the most important thing that I've learned is I know that I don't know. Yeah. And there's so many different ways to do it. And I think, again, it all comes back to how you define, manage, and model and how closely those things align. And so if you think about if we go to the management piece and let's say that when you define the expectation of the group, whether you're dictating it or it's collective, that draws a line. And then you have acceptable and unacceptable behavior. And so what I've noticed with coaches is some of them are surgical with praise and they're reinforcing things to the group for very specific reasons. 
So that behavior then gets repeated. And then on the flip side, how they convert below the line behavior is sophisticated because really where trust is going to be earned and lost is how you navigate the moments that catch you off guard. And if something negative happens, so what sport are you most familiar with? I played baseball in college and in the minor leagues. Yeah. So I'm trying to think about something. Um, maybe you, so let's say you're, uh, you're going to call for a pinch runner in a scenario and you call on person B instead of person A for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And person A is offended by that. And he says, F you. Think about how you would manage that scenario. Or, a, you know, you're referred to as coach and a player calls you by your first name mm-hmm. in front of the whole group. Like these really nuanced or your best players not wearing the shoe, the team shoes. How you navigate those, like people are always picking up your cues. Yep. And a lot of times when those things happen, coaches will go below the line themselves. Mm -hmm. And if they lack poise in that moment, it's going to be hard for them to ask for poise if they're not modeling it. Yeah. Okay. What are the, I'm going to flip, I'm going to go on the other side of the coin here. What are the common mistakes that you see leaders make that minimize their influence or minimize their, their success that they can have? I think that probably a couple of different things. Consistency is key. And I think that when you can see, like when you know what you're going to get in all situations, that is someone that's anchored into a firm foundation. Mm -hmm. And then I think the higher the level you go, matching that with, I think players want to see that you can put them in a position to be successful. So that's, key, and then not take credit for any of the success. Hmm. That's good. Okay. So I'm, we're going to role play here. I'm a coach who self-admittedly is just kind of inconsistent. I'm a little bit of a zoo. I'm a little bit all over the place. How, what, give me your, your, your best spiel or give me the, the first couple steps, the things that I can do to create some consistency in how I coach and how I lead. So when I get hired, it's not because I have answers. So the people that I'm typically working with are incredibly bright individuals and they know exponentially more about their situation than I do. Sure. So if it were about me having the answers, I don't think I would be employed. Let me ask it this way. What questions would you ask me to start processing and figure things out on my own? Yeah. So I would, maybe the first thing, and we're going to do the role play is I would ask what is contributing to the inconsistency? So what's, what's creating the inconsistencies? Honestly, um, winning, there's some pressure on me to win. I've got to win. Like I got a decent enough contract and I'm at a high enough profile sport on my campus that I've got to, I've got to win. And that has created some, some uh, inconsistencies in me. Did you know that when you took the job? I think when I took the job, I was so pumped that I got the job. There was a lot of stuff that I'm like, I will figure that out once I get there. I don't know if I grasp the total, the, 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 the bigness, so to speak of the job. 
And when did you really start feeling the pressure from it? Because it sounds to me like what's motivating you is security. Is that right? There would be an element of like, yeah, I want to. Yeah, I don't want to get fired. I want to keep this job. I love it here. But yeah, security is probably a good word. And how often do you feel the fear? We're printing like I'm a baseball coach. We have, we have. I think it's. Uh, I think they're at 56 game limit in the in, with per the NCAA. I'm going to feel that fear probably to some level or not 56 times. <laughs> okay. Before every game, and the high percentage over there. <laughs> so, um, with the fear, how is that manifesting in your behavior? Yeah, it's it it one 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 day I feel like I have it under control, and I you know I'm. I'm, I'm mentally okay. And I have a little bit more of a, of a steady demeanor and I'm more clear thinking and then big series and, or a game that we're supposed to win. I'll, I'll lose it. I'll snap. I'll, I, I'm a little bit of this, you know, this yo-yo. And what does that do with your players? Oh, they're, they don't know if they don't know who they're getting from, from day to day. Yeah. And my staff, they have no idea what they're going to get every day. And well, first of all, I appreciate your honesty. You're incredibly transparent (laughs) in this conversation. So what, what have you tried that has not worked? Um, that's a, that's a really good question. I think I've just, I've, I've tried to, to logically and consciously think, okay, I've still got three years on my con, you know, that the whole logic piece tried to talk myself off the ledge, uh, from just factual. I've, I've tried to, you know, uh, do some, some meditation slash being present and enjoy, you know, trying to get myself to enjoy the game. Those are the two big things that I've tried. So what do you think about this line? We're never so self-centered as when we feel fear or anger. Hmm. I'm curious for you to explain that. I would like for you to tell me how you interpret it. Okay, say it again. We're we're never so self-centered when we're fixated on fear or anger. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, when we're fixed on and feared it in, in anger, it is about us. We're the center of the world. We're the center of the game. It's like my contract. It's my record. It's what my reputation. So, yeah. And so as you listen to yourself, say that, what do you think? Yeah, that I'm pretty darn, (laughs) that, that I've made this all about me when in reality, it needs to be all about other, other people. Isn't that interesting? So in that moment, Brett, you're trying to trying to to so I guess for lack of a better term, peel back the onion of the layers because there's something at a core root that you're trying to get to that would probably clean up a lot of the presenting surface problems, correct? I think the more you can create an awareness around the intent, the more they can self-understand. So when the things are happening real time they are, it's not sneaking up on them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, man, it's really good. So I'm, I'm guessing just, and you mentioned it with your guys' camps, I'm guessing you're a big believer in questions Trump telling or, or asking Trump's by far telling people to information. Fair? For me, I think that 
if again, if it comes back to having the answers and that's hard because I think coaches feel like they have to have the answers yeah. at all times, that's going to create a lot of insecurity because there's going to be so many things that are happening that you are encountering for the first time inside the job. And so every time that happens, that's just going to reinforce all the things that drive these insecurities inside of you. So I think when you resign to the fact that you don't have to know it and one of my favorite coaching lines is why guess when you can know mm. sometimes you'll look at a player and think a, a specific situation that I wrote about in the book, a, a coach asked me to work with a player who was in a shooting slump. And so I sat down and shared with him my favorite coaching line. Why guess when you can know. And I said, if your teammate was in the exact same scenario as you, what advice would you give them? Can you take five to 10 minutes and just be super intentional and write it down? And what they wrote down was all about your value is not just when you score. You need to quit listening to the outside, all the different things. I would have never known that had I had asked. And that's the root cause. They're telling it. And the coach, the rep, the repetition is not going to fix that. This is so good. By the way, your guys' production and your the way you guys, the 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 uh, videos that you guys release are so well done. That's awesome, man. Really well done. Um, okay, I end with three questions um, on my podcast. First one is, what are you currently reading? What do you do? What does Brett Ledbetter do to stay sharp and be a continual learner? You know, it's interesting because I, I truly feel like I work with people that are smarter than me. Mm. And so every day I'm having substantive conversations about the personal and professional lives of people that I deeply respect and care for. So I think that I learn as much through those conversations. And honestly, that goes back all the way to the academy that really the fifth grade girl that just thinks you're a big human learning how to communicate with that person who's scared to say anything and is so insecure to touch a ball because they haven't played basketball. They taught me how to ask good questions. Mm. And so I think that like every person has something that you can learn and it's just tapping into that. And I would say that's truly how I stay sharp. And are you a reader though? Do you read? I sort of, yeah. I, I typically call and ask the person, uh, like if there's an, cause I'm just a better through conversation. Sure. And, uh, but the, my favorite author is Anthony DeMello and the book that really deeply impacted me was called the way to love. Yep. I've heard of him. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Uh, second question. Um, you're talking to a room full of low 20 year olds, men and women who think they want to get into the coaching profession, what advice would you give them? I think I would, I would encourage them to think through the, the five, first of all, what, what is your mission on earth? And one of my favorite lines comes from Sherry Cole. She said that how we spend our days is of course, how we spend our lives. It's mm, good. And so for me, the use the experience that you have now to build for whatever opportunities 
you're presented with and get the reps needed to counterbalance the forces because they get so much stronger the higher the level you go. And so if you can think through what are the different roles that you play on earth, the five most important, and then what are the supporting actions that will fulfill those roles in a way that you'd be proud of on your deathbed? And then what would you want your decisions and your behavior to reflect from a value standpoint and get the reps on the small stages? Because when you get the chance at the big stage, it's really difficult to apply that if the interior architecture is not in place. That's good. And the last question uh, I end with, who would you love to hear on this podcast? Talk about their story, share a little bit behind the scenes, talk about culture building and um, leadership. Yeah. Who would you? Really easy answer for me, man. It's Becky Burley. Okay. And I, I would challenge you to ask Anson and Tim Corbin why. I think the thing that I think about when I think about Becky is the, the leaders that maybe I respect the most are unable to be controlled and they don't force control. And Becky is magical at that. And somehow by the end of the year, she's got her whole team moving in that direction. Mm-hmm. And her inability to identify with outcomes, like she just can't do it. It's, it's remarkable that she's able to just stay even despite the waves. Explain what, you've, what you start off. You said something about she is uncontrollable. What, can you re- repeat that, please? Yep. So that she's not going to let the outside dictate her inner experience. Gotcha. So okay. She, she's not going to be controlled by anything on the outside. And she's not going to force control of her team. She is just going to relentlessly pursue influence. And they feel the love in her interaction. And it's, it's just hard not to be on the same team with her. Yeah, that's really good. Brett, thanks, man. Seriously, your stuff that you guys put out, um, really, really good stuff. I love your, yeah, I, I was, I've been intrigued with you for a long time. Just the way you, you ask questions, the way you frame things. Uh, super thoughtful. So, I'm, man, I'm, I'm pumped you took time for us today. Of course, man. Thanks so much for listening. I'm assuming if you made it this far that you enjoyed the conversation. Would you please leave a review and pass this podcast along to anyone else that you think might enjoy it? If you have any suggestions for the show, I'm always looking to, to grow and to improve the show. Email me at Travis at Kingdom Coaching tw.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, have a good one.